listening to The Sacristy, a podcast where we seek to learn, discuss, and exalt in the faith delivered once for all to the saints, as it has been passed down in the Anglican tradition. I'm Father David Bumstead, the rector of Emmanuel Episcopal Church in the Audubon Park neighborhood of Orlando, Florida, and I'm joined by my top flight co-host. Father Matthew Ainsley, the vicar of All Souls Episcopal Church, a church plant in Horizon West, Florida. We're real priests with real jobs and real churches, and service times are in our bio. We'd love for you to join us for worship if you're ever in town with us. Well, Father Matt, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. I think we're on, what, the seventh or eighth day of Christmas? I always lose track. Seventh day. Excellent. Yes. Um, so if you're decent at math, we're recording on New Year's Eve. <laughs> I'm terrible at math. Um, and uh, here we are. Yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're, we're post-Christmas. Uh, both of us having survived the Christmas rush of, of church life, family life, and of course the wonderful liturgical observances. Uh, my wife, my dear wife Rebecca, was quite upset with us after our last uh, content drop, Father Matt. Oh no. Yeah, well, you know, uh, if listeners recall, we were going through Christmas movies in our last time we were together, and she berated me for not putting in a movie that she quite likes called white christmas never seen it and i would say to her as someone who has seen it it's a bad movie (laughs) and if you like it that's fine i don't we had a lot of movies we left out i don't think we mentioned like miracle on 34th street which is another fan favorite yeah yeah so Well, well there's always next year i suppose Anyway, uh, well, Father Matt, tell me about how your Christmas went before we get started today in Ernest. It went really well. I think I said on the last episode that we're actually going to be outside mm-hmm. uh, at the French Cafe in Hamlin, which is the town center of Horizon West. And it was really great. Despite the weather, the weather was not great. It was really kind of messy out on Christmas Eve. And yeah. I was I was really excited because the meteorologists were saying it was going to be clear. <laughs> Even that morning, 0% chance of rain, I think, was the forecast, which I never understand why the Weather Channel would ever say 0 or 100% ever. Yeah. I mean, at least say, you know, there's a 1% chance. Yeah. Just kind of let yourself off the hook. Especially since they're wrong pretty much so every much, day. Yeah. Um, Here in Florida, definitely. So I was in the fetal position when I woke up and it was like 20 mile an hour winds and like just misting constantly. And like, you know, this is going to really sort of kill what we're doing. But, you know, it got to where it at least wasn't misting. It was still kind of windy, yeah. kind of gloomy, which I think probably didn't help us. But the team showed up. They figured out how to set up everything. I had one of my core team people build a wind barrier. So stuff on the not on the altar didn't get knocked over. And so you can actually see some pictures on uh, the Instagram, the sacristy, you posted something yesterday. Yeah. Well, what's, what's the all souls Instagram. It's it's at all souls. FL is the handle. And so you can see some of the pictures, but it it was, it was awesome. I thought it was beautiful. The pictures. And we had a really good turnout despite, Again, the weather probably deterred people from like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go sit, yeah. <laughs> sit in the winter monsoon out there. Yeah. I, I suspect there are others, though, who kind of appreciated the, the cool gloom of a, of, a, of a winter here in Florida, which oftentimes can be kind of hot and muggy and sunny, which doesn't necessarily translate to Christmas cheer. 
no, in some I, ways. Yeah, I think uh, a couple days from now, it's supposed to be like 85 degrees. Yes. Which is nuts. Which, if you're listening in elsewhere in the world, you're probably thinking 85 degrees. That sounds fine. And yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Um, well, at Emmanuel, we had a really, uh, really lovely Christmas uh, celebration. Can also um, see some beautiful pictures on your Instagram. Yes, our land, our our handle is much longer. I believe it's Emmanuel Episcopal Orlando. So good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, wonderful pictures. Our flower guild uh, really worked worked overtime, and they always do for both Christmas and Easter and others besides. Uh, our church inside is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, our Christmas trees are are absolutely fantastic with the chrismons uh you know and and but adorned with uh many of the of uh, many worshipers who came to see us and i'm very happy with how the how the uh, liturgies came together our choir put together some just amazing music um we actually had a a setting uh put together um by a um a northeastern comp- composer a young composer called zachary wadsworth and it's a, a setting up of, uh, of um, Love Came Down at Christmas, which is a wonderful uh, Christina Rossetti poem upon which I preached, actually. And um, it was a, a, a composition that we um, asked to be made so that uh, in honor of, of a really tragic parish death. And we sang it a few times over, over the season, and it was really, really gorgeous and really you know, as nice as the tune that's in the hymnal is, it's a lovely little tune, but uh, this tune that Mr. Wadsworth has put together, uh, really commissioned by Emmanuel, so our name is in the, in the, you know, in the kind of like legal documents, which is always really cool. Um, hearing it over and over again, hearing that text, having it tied to this incredible pastoral situation, tragedy being redeemed by God's love and beauty um, is really really emotional, really amazing time uh, at our parish. And so as, as Christmases tend to be, um, but uh, we're very happy with how Christmas turned out here at Emmanuel. So, uh, and we had lots of guests. So if you were a guest, thanks for joining us. See you on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, well, Looking ahead in the calendar as we get started, uh, well, Father Matt, what were we thinking about today? Well, before we get in the calendar, what was our on the agenda today? Did we have an agenda? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, being at uh, here at the at the end of the year of our first six months together podcasting, uh, we were kind of thinking about what we wanted to cover. We were sort of tired from from Christmas and post Christmas, so we but we were thinking instead of a full on episode, we could do a meditation on the nativity here in this Christmas tide uh, with the, I suppose the, the new year's resolution that we'll try to get more actual full on prepped episodes out. Sure. <laughs> the face he just made. I wish you could see dear listeners. <laughs> I'm kind of in a coma because full disclosure, we just had 30 nuggets <laughs> and I'm, I'm pounding the red bull right now. And <laughs> Hopefully in about 10 minutes, I'm going to be back. Our show prep today was talking over our content while eating a whole bunch of chicken nuggets. Nugs. It's really good. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, we, after we talk about the calendar and pray, we'll, we'll go through a meditation, uh, just a conversation about the incarnation. So thank you for joining us. 
Father Matt, the Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Eternal Father, who didst give to thine incarnate Son the holy name of Jesus to be the sign of our salvation, plant in every heart, we beseech thee, the love of him who is the Savior of the world, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Amen. That being the uh, the call to the day for the Feast of the Holy Name, which in, in church terms is what we call New Year's Day. Uh, used to be called other names. Uh, we still have the circumcision uh, as, a, as, a, as an older possibility, I suppose. Um, and my ushers usually like to drag that out and try to post that up. And I'm always like, yeah, go for it. Try it. See what happens. But really, in the in the uh, calendar, it's it's pretty clear, uh, even in this kind of festive season, this octave of the of the incarnation of the nativity. Excuse me. Uh, one calendar thing that I always find a bit of a challenge as a parish priest is what to do when you want to observe the Epiphany. Uh, I don't know what you're doing, Father Matt, but here at Emmanuel, we're actually going to observe it on the twelfth night on fifth on the fifth. Uh, same yeah hard same hard same <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we'll do that on sunday morning do you guys do anything are you are you planning anything special for the epiphany no we're just going to transfer it so that we can observe it together okay, because otherwise cool. it would be difficult yeah <laughs> yeah we only have the school on sunday right that we pretty difficult for you guys yeah. i've just found that um midweek services on on mondays and fridays especially are pretty difficult to do but uh we really want to keep the epiphany here at Emmanuel, and we have uh, we'll have a tradition of meeting the three kings. They'll come and serenade us after church and hand out gifts. And I'll make a king cake. I'm actually going to practice my king cake tonight. What's in a king cake? It's uh, it's kind of a bready cake. It's similar okay. to a cinnamon roll, but instead of a cinnamon roll, traditionally it has almond filling. So it's a rolled cake. It's proved dough, and it's usually got a white frosting with multicolored. So it's uh, thick robust would you say it's <laughs> i can't even spin it out i was gonna say would you say it's fit for a king but i can't even <laughs> you're so ridiculous you're keeping this in <laughs> oh man that's that's great yeah yeah I look and we're gonna to get reading. to the epiphany uh in a minute when we do the sermon first pass right yeah we're gonna keep those readings talk all about that yeah all about that but you know it, I, it's also really neat when when you get uh two two sundays after christmas uh, so uh, apologies to any of our colleagues who are keeping uh, the second Sunday of Christmas. Um, you can do your own sermon prep, though. <laughs> well, here we are. This Christmas tide really is uh, an entire season, a small season, but an entire season really where we're meant to rejoice in what God has done in the incarnation. So. We just wanted to talk about that for a little while today. Father Matt, this morning when we were talking, uh, it struck me that you had a very beautiful, basic definition of the Incarnation. So what what is the Incarnation? What What is it? For those of you who are confused, I suppose. Well, you have to remind me particularly uh, what I said, because I can't remember anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but sometimes we use these words and people are like, oh, that sounds important. So yeah. What What is the incarnation? Is that like a a breakfast shake? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's carnation. Carnation. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's referring to that uh, God became man. 
yeah. in flesh that the second person, the Holy Trinity, one God, became human. In the Gospel of John, the word became flesh. The Greek word is sarx. And John uses uh, really like the most like, crude word that you could use. Mm, sure. To, to say, you know, this is not some sort of, you know, what would later be called docetism, that he would seem to become human, that he was some sort of apparition, but but really not taking on everything that it means to be man. Yeah. But no, this is God becoming man. Which, you know, another way to say that word, and I think, you know, crudely, you know, we say incarnation and it sounds important. And it so it does, now that you mentioned it, sound like a breakfast uh, product, which I like that. Thank you. I'll never forget that. Um, but... Another way to say it is enfleshment, mm. which sounds kind of gross. And maybe it is, I don't know. But that idea of enfleshment, incarnation, the idea that God would do that, you know, um, is, is what, we're, what we're talking about today. And I might add an idea theologically that when we get into the weeds about this, and I know we will, but just as a, a prefiguring that moment... <laughs> is probably one of the more difficult theologically concepts of, of, Chris, of Christian thinking because it is kind of bizarre in the ancient world to say that the most perfect being that is God putting on flesh, putting on the imperfect, uh, sounds kind of insane. Um, and yet it is so critical and central to not only our theological uh, conversation, but really our spiritual conversation as Christians, really our entire identity, um, which is to say, you know, how have Christians thought about this? Uh, well, and certainly we find we mind the Bible. We find we find in the New Testament that this is something that the the New Testament authors are taking very seriously, right? Um, tell me about tell me about some of that fundamental. Like, how how do you see that? coming out expressly in the New Testament. Well, of course, as I've already referenced, uh, the Johannine prologue, the first chapter of John, it's all about, you know, who is this Jesus in this introduction, uh, very much in the style of Genesis chapter one, yeah. and which carries throughout the whole book. I mean, the gospel of John I think when we read it, we should think about it as, you know, this is Genesis 2. Mm. And we should think of it as uh, a retelling and a recapitulation. A shorter word for that is like a recap yeah, right. of Genesis 1, right. uh, done, done afresh. And so, of course, you have that, that great prologue that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. Uh, I also think of uh, even... Romans uh, chapter five, where Christ is presented as, as the second Adam, mm -hmm. because as we're all in Adam, the first Adam, and so we inherit from him this propensity uh, to do evil because of the fall, called original sin in the West, called ancestral sin in the East. And because we're in Adam, we descend from him. So the second Adam, uh, Jesus Christ being presented as as the primal uh, human being, that is the first human being, maybe not 
uh, chronologically in terms of his nativity, although he, you know, I am that I am. He's right. existed uh, before Adam. Uh, but in terms of logically prior, prior in terms of having that, that firstness of position. And so that as the human being, all those are who are in him uh, take on his likeness and, and his qualities and are, are united with the Godhead through him. And the incarnation makes that union possible. Right. Like we can be in him because he took on what it means. He became fully human. He took on human flesh. He took on uh, everything that it means to be human. So when we talk about fully human and, and fully divine. And Jesus Christ is both. We're, we're talking about, you know, in philosophical language, when we get into to nature and essence and all those things, mm-hmm. what makes a thing a thing? So everything that it means to be human, Jesus, Jesus Christ is, yeah. is. So that's why it's important that like he wasn't like an apparition, like he had a body because to be human is to be enfleshed. And so Jesus became uh, and, and flesh for, for us and for our salvation. I always think about Philippians and, um, it, you know, the kenosis passage too. Right. Right. Yeah, Philippians too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, it's, it's so interestingly phrased by, by St. Paul. Uh, he writes, uh, who was born in the form of who, excuse me, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Kenosis, like you say, taking the form of a servant. Uh, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Yeah. And one of the things that's so beautiful about that passage is, is right there, even though it's it's more it gets articulated extensively uh, in Nicaea and then of course at uh, Chalcedon in the mid fifth century, mm-hmm. is that kenosis, which means he emptied himself. Well, then what comes after is how did he empty himself? Did he cease to be God? No, he emptied himself. It's subtraction by addition that right. he that uh, he became human, right? That the way that he emptied himself, the way that he humbled himself is that he condescended in human flesh, right. not by setting aside his divine nature, which is an impossibility right. for, for God to do, nor did he say that what, what, that's what he was going to do. Um. So just a that's a beautiful passage. So yeah, and it also helps us read the New Testament, right? Because um, you know, as we'll, we'll we'll get into this a little bit, I think this time, and of course we'll 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 come back to the incarnation later on, I'm sure. But um, that um, the incarnation in itself is effective, right? It does something for us, but also pointing to the fact that. Uh, Jesus's life's culmination is in the death of the cross, his rising to life again. So that, uh, as you said this morning, as we were pre- preparing, that the the life and death really do come together in Jesus Christ and have this incredible uh, implication for salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because going back to the Nicene Fathers, anything, here's the the governing principle of, of Christology, we talk about, you know, who is Jesus and his two natures as yeah. it'll be defined. Anything that Jesus did not take on, take up is not redeemed. 
So if Jesus doesn't have a human will, then our will is not redeemed. If Jesus doesn't have a human body, then our bodies are not redeemed. And so he might've conquered death, but he didn't conquer death for us. Right. Because these, so the the fullness of uh, his humanity uh, is so important uh, to the fathers and to the writers of scripture and and for us. And so that's, that's why the incarnation matters because it has this salvific uh, end. What else, Father David, uh, do you see as, you know, the functions of the incarnation and the importance of the incarnation, particularly in the ancient church? How, how, was it, how is it talked about? Well, so a lot of times when in the, in the ancient church, uh, and many writers go through this, and I was actually um, kind of reading just a, a really old text, um, one of the apostolic fathers, and, uh, and I'm going to mess this pronunciation up because it's been a few years since seminary, but uh, seminary, excuse me. <laughs> That was totally, totally uh, unprovoked. I'm sorry, uh, but it's uh, the uh, the Epistle of uh, Diogenetus, and um, he writes uh, this. This author writes about how important the incarnation is um, to reveal and appear. So to appear to the disciples, to appear to these people in a place, and reveal the the teachings of of himself, but also. Like what is God like, right? And then, and then that's a it's a, a a similar theme is carried out through so many ancient writers. I mean, Athanasius famously uh, uses it, uh, the same kind of kind of example. Uh, Augustine later would would talk about that. Even Aquinas uh, in in the Summa talks about the fitness of God condescending in the incarnation. Why is that good? Why would He do that? Why is that something that God would even be interested in? as being a perfect being why would he why would he condescend to put on flesh because out of his goodness because um a good thing would want to communicate its goodness and the best way for it for this thing god him to do that is to become the most clear sign uh to humanity which the clearest sign of humanity is itself right so the the incarnation itself is simply put uh, really God being his own sign saying uh, to the world I'm here Um, I'm here to do all these things for and with you Um, and I I know what it's like to be you and uh, so now you can kind of figure out what it's like to be me and so that we can have union that's kind of the the in broad strokes what I keep seeing over and over uh, in in the ancient church, um, you know, with some exception of course because it's a it's a big church even then, mm-hmm. um, but we get that idea of of sign value in the incarnation that man could finally know who God is because it can recognize itself at least, yeah. and then go from there. Yeah, the most definitive revelation that we have of God and simultaneously the most definitive revelation that we have of what it means to be human is found in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Want to know what, what God's like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Back to the Johannine prologue. You know, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten on his side. He has explained him. The, now we're back in seminary. The Greek word is exegeto. He has exegeted the Father. Um, and then you have it in 
in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, not Paul, but whoever whoever wrote Hebrews. <laughs> Obviously Paul. <laughs> <laughs> He's saying, you know, in times past, God spoke through prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken through His Son. Yeah. So, so that told us some things about God. Right. But now we have the revelation right. of who God is. Yeah. And it's in Jesus Christ. And it got me thinking a little the bit. The incarnate this is, one. Right. And this is like a little bit of an excursus or, or maybe it's... Uh, just garbage thinking I don't know but that idea that in the ancient world like people were kind of interested in knowing who God is there's a kind of um, uh, I don't know it might be it might be too much of a, a of an oversimplification of like you know of, of, a, of the ancient world but I'm, I'm thinking about Paul in the Areopagus right like he's he's kind of like assuming that everybody is conversing and thinking about God right so when when the apologists, the early apologists, people like Augustine and even Athanasius, like these guys, these early church are talking about, well, what do you, you guys are all like talking about the, 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 the world outside of the church thinking in religious terms. That world is, is trying to figure out who God is. And so now the Christian faith can say, oh, we, you, you want to know who God is. Take a look at Jesus. He can tell you everything you want to know about this God you're searching for, which is kind of a cool idea to think that, you know, when the early, when the early church was talking to their neighbors, they could say, I know him. I know there was a guy. He was also God. Stay with me. You know, I mean, people are incurably religious, but, but I don't think it's an oversimplification. I think you're absolutely right to say that the ancient world almost without exception was self-consciously religious sure and in the best sense of the term of of being aware that uh, that there is something transcendent and that as human beings we can participate uh in in greater things um and they were able to be in, in dialogue with that in a way that uh it's hard, I think it's hard for us to understand. That's mm. like when Paul's saying, you know, the Gospels, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. Because, I mean, that God became man and then died at the hands of the Romans, that is like yeah. philosophically... Impossible, right? Yeah, impossible. Yeah. But yet that's the that's that is what the happened. Christian story, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, and as you talk about uh, talking about that that the the movement to the cross, you know, it begs the question: How is the nativity a salvific act, then, Father Matt? I think, again, whatever he doesn't he doesn't take up is not redeemed. So by taking humanity unto himself, he, he takes it. He takes on human flesh, takes on humanity, uh, in order to uh, redeem it. Uh, but then I think if we're going to talk about our soteriology, soteriology being a big seminary word that you get to make student loan payments for, I don't know if it's worth it. But um, So many. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just the doctrine of, of salvation. Right. How we talk about salvation. Yeah. Soteriology, that's how we talk about salvation, um, is asking the question, what is salvation? And, you know, we can go in two different extremes, but... I think what's happened in you know the 20th century, particularly in 
you know, American Protestantism, there's been all this emphasis on salvation as what you're saved from, mm-hmm. which is valid because I think there's people that are leaving that behind that were saved from sin, <laughs> death, hell, the devil. There, there is these realities exist. We can't just ignore them. Uh, but sometimes there, there's no conversation about okay, what are we saved for? Right. And salvation. And you were joking, I think, a week ago that this is going to end up being sort of like we're just LARPing as Orthodox Christians, <laughs> as Eastern Orthodox. But I do love the emphasis in the East and this that salvation is union with God, which you even get that in great, like a great Western yeah. ascetical theologian like, like Harton, Elements of the Spiritual Life, that, that we, were, we were created to be united with God, to be partakers of the divine nature. And so, of course, sin and death make that impossible because how can the dead like those who pass out of existence how can they praise god and know him they can't and so it's important so if salvation is union with god and and it's also rescuing us from the effects of the fall and uh and putting the world right so that we can have union with god the incarnation is such a big part of that um and, you know, N.T. Wright talks about how um, there can be all the emphasis is placed on the death and resurrection of Jesus, which that should get a lot of emphasis. It's the it's right. the climax of, of Christ's work, mm-hmm. uh, dying for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But it wasn't, the Gospels aren't just this backstory of well, Jesus needed to do something, so he's he's doing he's doing some miracles. He's, you know, feeding some people. He's teaching some stuff. I think we have to see that his whole life is a, is a saving act. Yeah, which I want to say one of the ways he saved us is he actually saved us in his baptism, right? Which we'll get to when we get to the. You're epith- basically saying epiphany. that that when we that when we read the Gospels, that we should pay attention to them. Right, because there, there's all that there's all that material in the story, and it's all salvific, right? It's yes. all being drawn into a draw. Excuse me, drawing us into into greater union yeah. with Christ. It's not as if it's not as if the the material before uh, the um, before the passion is sort of lore, right? That we just sort of like can argue about, like we or like you know just like Star Wars and Game of Thrones fans, right? We we want to. We want to say that actually this is in, the entire gospel narrative is itself for us, right? And and in that for usness is part of our, to use that word again, soteriology, our the way we think about salvation. I mean, the gospels are gospel. That seems like so remedial to say. Yeah. So all of what's written, the, this is the proclamation. This is right. this is the good news, not just the end of it, but the whole story. And I think sometimes you'd be like, well, Jesus did all these things because some passages in the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to do these things. So it's just simple sort of right. Um, Jesus is fulfilling prophecies to prove that he's the Messiah. And, and it's that's all it is. And so then the acts themselves become arbitrary because Jesus could have done anything to fulfill the prophecies could have been whatever instead of like, for example, with the healing. Well, when people are sick and they're dying, 
that is part and parcel of being a, a part of a world that is ruled by death yeah. and that is broken. And so when Jesus heals someone, that's salvific because he's coming and he's putting the world right. Right. So it is load bearing. Like he, that's Jesus saving all of us from sickness and death through his work in the gospels. Yeah. Um, so given that Jesus is found to be healing, uh, he is found to be teaching. He is found to be living this life of salvation for us, right? Pro nobis in, mm-hmm. in Latin, which is, you know, one of the best ways to read the new Testament. I think when you're reading about Jesus and you ask the question quickly of the text, what does this mean, pronobis? What does this mean for us, right? Because I, I believe the Gospels are always trying to get us to think about that, right? Um, because, you know, everything that Jesus is doing is for us, which is itself kind of an amazing thing to think about. What are some implications that we can think of as we close out uh, for uh, Christian life, for how we observe our own faith, uh, you know, is the incarnation something that just happened back then? It doesn't have much bearing now. Is it something that um, something that we enjoy even now? Uh, you know, we're looking at each other like, of course, but like, why? How? What does that even make? What does that even mean? Well, I'm going to immediately go to like the sacramental dimension of it. Like the word became flesh and dwelt among us and the word goes on and continues to become flesh yeah. in the altars of Christ church yeah, in uh, bread and wine. And, and he's with us and, and um, dwe- dwells in our midst and w- we take him into us. And so that we can dwell in him. Right. Um, that's one. I think also that Jesus's kingdom said, my kingdom is not of this world. But his kingdom is for this world and the incarnation and then climaxing with the resurrection is the reaffirmation of God's intention for the cosmos, Mm. that he's redeeming this world, that we're not the cosmos which he made. And uh, like our our bodies are important and we can experience the kingdom of God here and now. Not, not fully. We're not saying we're going to build the kingdom of God by our own efforts and that there's not like a greater participation in God when we die or at the last day. It's, it's a both and. Right. And so it protects us from all sort of manner of uh, dualism, from apathy that, yeah, like this life and this world doesn't really matter. Well, it seemed to matter a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. It it makes me think about that word that you've already used, the embodiment, right? And then how that means for like presence in our in lives, right? And I'm I'm always thinking about that as a parish priest. Um, you know, you you always give me such nice props about being in our neighborhood. Um and I you, I think what you're doing in your neighborhood is is stellar. But this is the reason why we do that, right? This is the reason why we are where we are right we, we we're not just doing this because we think it's a nice idea or you know that we re- we heard about it in a podcast and like 
go do that thing. But we priests and Christians in general, when they take the incarnation seriously, you are present. You're present to the lives around you. You're present in your families. You're present at work. You're present in the church. You're present in a in a kind of pronobis way. You're present for other people to serve and to love, just like Christ. I mean, we're supposed to be in union with him and we're supposed to act and look like him when we, when we do act. And so this idea of the incarnation becomes this ethical mandate, I think, um, to Christians to, to be present. Uh, and I talked about this on Sunday in my sermon that, um, you know, when we're thinking about keeping company, that we need to be embodied with the people in our lives and not just sort of like, not just sort of like, you know, on social media or an email or anything. Like we really do need to take care to be in each other's presence because that's what God did, right? I mean, he sent He sent the email and then 10 commandments and it didn't really work out so well, <laughs> right? Uh, but he sent his son who's, who gave us grace and truth. I mean, that's the end of the prologue is Moses versus Jesus, right? Um, so we have received grace and truth through Jesus Christ. What do you think that means for, uh, you know, since, since I agree with you, obviously, that, that, that the sacramental dimension of the incarnation, like the, the sort of like um, the presence among us of, of grace and Jesus Christ uh, being among us in the sacrament and his grace being present with us in, in the sacraments besides the communion. What do you think that means for us in obedience? What do you think that means for us um, in, in Christian holiness does it mean anything absolutely because the church is the body of Christ and so, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're tasked with uh, doing now in the power of the Holy Spirit what Jesus did in his earthly ministry I mean as the father sent me so now I send you right. And so there is such a close link. I mean, so close, it, it almost feels blasphemous mm-hmm. saying it. The link between Christ and his mystical body, which is the church. We'll say something crazy like we are him, right? And that sounds, that's that feels weird to say it, but it's, that is the promise of the church. I mean, that is the sacramental existential sort of theological claim of the church is that we are his body we participate in everything that he is athanasius on the incarnation god became man that man might become god right and so that was that's on the incarnation right yeah, something like that um it's a i think it's a patristic aphorism yeah yeah um and, and that sounds blasphemous and we're not saying that we become god in his essence like the, the creator creature distinction is obliterated but it's that we truly do if we said that then dr borisma would be very upset with us yeah uh it can sound pantheistic that's what's being said is that we truly participate in the divine that we're we're made to know god to see god to be united with him and that the incarnation is what makes that possible yeah finally i just want to throw out there um that we both enjoy beauty in our, our church observance. We, we, we love our 
we love the the beauty of the western tradition we love all the sort of like bells smells whistles and all that stuff and and to me like that kind of stately wonderful ancient christian observance and 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 practice really does speak to the adornment of of the incarnation um i joked once from a sermon a sermon that like even the candle holders and my acolytes use like as kind of antique as they look they really are this uh otherworldly beauty pointing to mm-hmm. an otherworldly beauty that is both obviously useful and present to us and our sort of practical practicality of lighting candles but you don't have to use something as pretty as that to light a candle you can just use a, a lighter but that's what that's what church does and should do is have and contain these really amazing aspects of beauty that are meant to help the mind and heart seek towards the transcendent just as this sort of probably you know scuzzy looking dude um really helped and uh and brought everyone around him at least into contact with the father so you know i always say that my candlesticks are a function of the incarnation absolutely absolutely yeah, otherwise just, you know, get a grill lighter. Yeah. Which yeah. I actually had to do because the wind was so bad at Christmas Eve. <laughs> I bet. We're just up there with grill lighters huddled around yeah. uh, the altar candles and, you know, you do your best. Did but, they stay on? Uh, half of them did. That's pretty cool. And then we were going to light the little individual candles and sing Silent Night. Didn't even try to do it. It was, it was so windy. <laughs> did you sing? We just, we sung Silent Night. Yeah. But I we did not use our candles, so we'll have to save them for next year and... Uh, really pray and fast for better weather or find another video. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, we hope um, that that brought some clarity or perhaps was uh, put you in a devotional mood or was an otherwise encouragement. I, I do pray that people would take just a little bit of time during Christmas tide to be mindful of what what tremendous joy, beauty, grace uh, is is in the incarnation. Um, especially because, you know, as priests, we're already kind of thinking about Holy Week. And what's funny is, so is the New Testament. Um, and that's how we, that's probably where we'll start uh, as we get to our sermon first pass. All right, we're going to be doing the lessons for the Feast of the Epiphany, which is on January 6th. But as we said, we're going to transfer that to the 5th, observe it a, a day early. Uh, we're in liturgical year A, if you're following RCL. And the readings are Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. Uh, the psalm is Psalm 72, verses 1 through 7, and then 10 through 14. The epistle is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And then the gospel is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um these texts together uh, are absolutely incredible, um, which is a funny thing to say about the scriptures. Of course they are. Um, but the, the, the beauty of the first line of Isaiah, the, the first thing that, that worshipers will hear from the word of God on a Sunday or at the Epiphany, um, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Um, and to me, it's one of those 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 scripture verses that um, is just to hear the the words arise shine, 
are so uplifting, so encouraging. Um, darkness shall cover the earth. Darkness covering the earth is sort of like something we can see prima facie. We don't really need much um, insight to see that, unfortunately. Thick darkness, the peoples, we know that, we feel that. Um, but then uh, Isaiah says, the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. And then almost perhaps as a refrain we could say arise shine for your light has come the glory of the lord has risen upon you and that is that is what christ is i mean isaiah prefiguring looking forward to this messiah and now he is here in the nativity nation shall come to your light and the kings of the brightness of your dawn christ's light has dawned upon us uh the day spring from on high has lifted upon us it's just gorgeous Yeah, with the Feast of the Epiphany, which is uh, a really old feast, yeah. from what I understand, goes back to the second century and and even prior to to Christmas, where we kind of broke it up into smaller, mm -hmm. uh, you know, di different seasons. And sort of a little back to this, the Epiphany, which I mean, the word means manifestation, comes from a Greek word which means to reveal, right? Which you know, people, you know, use it in common every day speech of you know had an epiphany like the light came on right you know, and, and you, you what you were supposed to do or the, where you, you know where your car keys were were lost you know <laughs> were, were revealed to you and you manifested to you in that moment and really is focused on uh two events uh one is you know the magi mm -hmm. three kings however you want to say it fo following the star and and worshiping uh, the infant, the child, Jesus. Uh, and then there's also been a focus, uh, and this particularly uh, in the East, is the focus on the baptism of the Lord, that the the Father's voice and the Holy Spirit descending is manifesting that he is indeed uh, the Son of God. Right. In the West, of course, we, we use that the baptism of our Lord as the first Sunday after the Epiphany. Mm -hmm. so, so you have both those uh, things together. And it's really interesting. I was telling you while we're eating uh, lunch nuggets. And what nuggets oh yeah while we're eating so many nuggets it's like 30 nuggets 30 nuggets um I feel great <laughs> yeah, i feel awesome <laughs> is in the city of prague they combine sort of these eastern and western traditions so in the east one of the things the cool things they do on the epiphany uh in commemoration of the baptism baptism of the lord which is epic if you live in somewhere where it's cold is, is they take a <laughs> They take a cross and they throw it into a river, yeah. ocean, a pool. We actually have an Episcopal priest here in town up in Mount Dora that they have a they pool. They do have that pool, yeah. And for baptism of our Lord, they throw a cross into the pool and all the kids jump in and dive in and, and retrieve it. It's a symbol of the baptism of, of, of the Lord. St. Edward's Mount Dora. Yeah. Hey, How you doing? And in Prague, uh, actually, these men will go swimming in the river and it's cold in Prague in January, and they'll wear crowns upon their heads. So oh, they're kind of cool. bringing together the the three kings with right. uh, the baptism of our Lord. Uh, so pretty neat. Um, you can do that in Tarpon Springs, by the way, if you really want to. Yeah, that's one of the biggest. It's one of the biggest celebrations uh, of that. I I think in the country, they yeah. have thousands of people that come out, uh, and it won't be that cold if you want to go won't. dive. Tarpon dive Springs in is in Southwest Florida, dear listeners. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So I think what I'm going to do, I'm 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 preaching this Sunday, of course. I'm the only priest on staff, and I, I don't have a guest preacher uh, this Sunday. I, I really just want to hone in on the gospel. Yeah, same. And, and talk about okay, what is this event and what does it mean? Yeah. And, and one of the things, um, and we see this in Isaiah 60, which you've already talked about, is you know, and what the fourth verse: "Nations shall come to your light." Right. By these Medo-Persian magicians, yeah, <laughs> scholars, kings, whatever you want to call them, whatever you convince they they were and are, you know, they they're not Jewish. They're right. not from the line of Abraham, and it's showing the inclusion of the Gentiles. Well, that's the biggest point of them, right? Is, in the is that in the plan of, of God, yeah, of of them being important, but not us, right? Yeah. If you're if you're if you're Jewish, if you're Hebrew, you know. And Matthew's a very Jewish gospel right. where it's intent on showing that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. But since Matthew knew Isaiah, the logic has always been is that he's king of the Jews and therefore Lord of the world. Right. So I want to focus in on that. But then also something, you know, and I was saying this to you earlier, we can't assume that everyone like knows these stories and, and knows the things that, um, and this, not to admit, not to sound condescending, just the things we sort of take for granted because sure. this is what we do. So like the three gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, what's going on there? Were those just the hot things on Amazon Prime that year? <laughs> uh, it's know, on his list. Is it like, you know, if it happened now, would it have been a pair of like Apple AirPods or, or a PS4? Baby Yoda. <laughs> it would have been a Baby Yoda. Yeah, the, those are really, really popular. I really want one. And so the meaning of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, you know, and we have, again, to go back to Isaiah 60, this is, it's prophetic. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Right. But in the ancient world, you give gold to commemorate important people, particularly mm -hmm. kings. Right. And so, I mean, they, they bow down and they pay homage to the Christ child and they, they bring this gold showing his office of king. Yeah. Do you want to jump in and do the other two? You want me to keep No, going? no, no. Go for <laughs> it because I'm going to take it a different way. Okay. And then you have the frankincense, which we, we still use and, and worship to this day. Incense yeah. and, uh, in the Old Testament was something. And in the ancient world, it, it shows divine presence. That's why we sense altars. That's right. why uh, Solomon's temple, when the Lord inhabited it, it was inhabited it with his glorious presence it was filled with smoke it's this symbol of emmanuel that that right. god is with us and that this christ child is divine uh, and then finally uh the myrrh which can also be used as an incense but was also the it's a myrrh's a resin right is yeah it a resin yeah is taken and, and used it used as an ointment it could have been medicinal but it was also used in burial right which we read in the gospel of john when Jesus was buried, they take a, a mix of uh, myrrh and these aloes and they anoint him with it when he's buried. And so the myrrh is symbolizing that uh, he would die for our sins, that uh, he would become king uh, on earth as in heaven uh, through his death, which is one of the things I focused on in my Christmas Eve sermon, sermon is that embedded in the infancy narratives is the death of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, and in early iconography, yeah. you know, it the way that the child is wrapped, it looks like his burial wrappings. Yeah. It looks like 
he's a corpse and he's usually and, and the cave is split very much in the same way that it is you know the, the icons of the resurrection right which we want to say can be can be somewhat inscrutable to, to modern taste right because we are so uncomfortable with with death in a lot of ways and it seems kind of strange to have death and birth so closely aligned mm-hmm. but in the ancient world that symmetry is not only natural but but extremely encouraging mm-hmm. um and you know it's embedded in our if you listen carefully to the christmas hymns yeah. hark the herald angel sings born to raise the sons of earth born, born to, to give, give them second, second birth. birth and the means by which he gives us birth is through his death yeah. and we see that from the very beginning so i'm just going to really hone in on what's going on in this story and what's the the typology yeah and then of course and, and um an exhortation ending that you know as trite as it is like we need to seek christ as the wise men did like well, the bumper sticker wise men still seek him yeah. i mean as cheesy as it is that's what we're being called to do because well, yeah the gospels it, you know they're for us they're calling us to life in christ i always say to when i when i um when i bless a home in epiphany tide you know you, we make the mark of uh, over the lintel the c the m and the b and one tradition has that as being you know the the names of the of the, of the kings of the the wise men, uh, you know, and uh, and so somebody inevitably asks, well, why do we want their names on there? We're like, well, because we're supposed to participate in that which they did, which is to leave our homes, which is we're blessing that right now. We're meant to leave our homes. We're meant to go to a place to bring Christ loud and serve him. So in essence, this lintel marking over the door is a mark of our pilgrimage as Christians. Yeah, that's really good. And you sound like John Keeble right now. I think it's Keeble. I was reading a sermon of his during Epiphany. It was this whole thing. I'll take he, that, by the way. He ended it with uh, the sacramental aspect of the Epiphany of, like, we go to Bethlehem, the house of bread, to receive the bread of life. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to be, I don't think I'm going to go that way with my homily this year, Father. I think I'm going to talk about Herod. Because I love this story, and Herod comes off like such a dummy. Uh, well, really, in throughout the New Testament, but anytime he appears, you, you can sense the the gospel writers just taking him down a couple pegs. And so I love this. Um, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. This passage begins asking, "Where is the child who's been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star is rising. We have come to pay him homage." We know a star is a big deal, and we want to go see where that is. We want to go be with that person, whoever that is. And King Herod, instead of being awestruck by their uh, by their piety or inspired or <laughs> or otherwise sort of transfixed by the light of the star, he says he when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him because obviously he's their sort of like puppet magistrate king. Like you mm-hmm. know, if he's afraid, they're afraid because they're afraid of him. He's not the best. And he does this. He calls together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So Herod, who's this ostensible, ostensibly the king of the Jews, right? Um, you know, he's this again, this puppet ruler, but he doesn't know his own tradition. He's got to rely on the scribes, right? He's got. To, I'm, I'm doing air quotes. You can't see that, listener. Mm. Um, but he's he's relying on the scribes. He's relying on these religious professionals, uh, the priests of the people. So he says, well, where, "What's this? What is this happening? Where's this going to happen?" Uh, why why the star 
where, right? And they said that they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, like you said, the house of bread. For as it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, and that land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, etc. Uh, so then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the start appeared. So he's like, he's getting this secret intel. And the wise men are kind of like, they're not really, um, they're unwise accomplishments. They're useful idiots, right? They're, they're not, their only agenda is to go meet the person that uh, whose abode caused a star, right? They, they, they're just looking for the star. They're looking for this amazing individual, right? They're not necessarily in cahoots with Herod, but Herod is the worst. And then he said to them, and to, then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, okay, this, that's where they are. Uh, that's my scribe said, go, go over there. Go and search diligently for the child. And I love this. And whenever I read this in public, I'm always kind of like put on my best like Emperor Palpatine voice. Like, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. Like, which is such garbage, right? Herod is such a jerk. He's, there's no way he's going to bring him homage. Father Matt, what is he going to do if he finds him? He's going to kill him. He's going to kill him, yeah. Which was his M.O. throughout his life. Right. Uh, historically. Yeah. Um, you know, he had he had a, a residence with a really nice pool. If you've watched any History Channel <laughs> yeah, stuff. That's right. like, like a really sweet sort of natural <laughs> yeah, pool that yeah. he built. And like if you got invited to a pool party there, watch out. Because, you know, all accounts point to the fact that he had his brother-in-law drowned right. in the shallow end. Like kind of out on the edge of the pool. He also, he was so obsessed with his, any sort of threats he would just kill. Right. And he was so obsessed with uh, his position, and he knew that he was well-liked that when he was near his death, he actually rounded up some nobles and had ordered uh, for them to be executed when it, whenever he died so that uh, people would mourn. Because he didn't want anyone rejoicing at his death. So he's like, I'm going to, you might not like me, but I'm going to kill people you do yeah. like. So that there's mourning on the day that and I, those people got released after he died and people did rejoice because he was a terrible ruler. And I, you always, I feel like whenever you read the gospels, the, the, the writers are just keyed into that because it always shows the grace, uh, and, 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 and poise and, um, generosity of Jesus. And it's almost always juxtaposed against the just pettiness of Herod. And he heard the King, they set out and there ahead of them went the star uh, that they had seen its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. So they're following after the light of the star. Arise, shine, for your light has come. I mean, like right there in Isaiah. And when they saw the star stop, they were overwhelmed with joy. Why? Because they're in the presence of the king of the world, of the universe. And entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they knelt down and paid him homage. So they worshipped him. Mm -hmm. They worshipped him. I always think about how, um, how incredible that would have been the opportunity to worship the Christ child at his birth. Um, I always think about that during our own silent night um, singing. We get to kneel in front of the altar and I sort of, our crash is in front of the altar and I just get to stare at, at our Lord, even as he's just this little tiny cute uh, figure in the, in, the, in the manger. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, as Father Matt has said, this um, foreshadowing, great narrative force there where we're kind of thinking about funeral gifts. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, right? So where have we seen a dream already? I mean, 
an angel already appeared to Joseph and said, this is what's going to happen. So it's fairly likely that the same kind of angel or some uh, other, you know, message comes to these guys and they uh, warned him not to return to Herod. And they left for their own country by another road so that Herod's own forces wouldn't, um, you know, intercept them. But of course, why? If they return to Herod, what happens to Jesus? Not going to go well. It's not going to go well. I just love this story so much because I really hate Herod. <laughs> yeah. So that's probably where, where I'll take it. And then ending with an exhortation like you will. Um, not only to follow after, follow after the example of these magi, but also that we would ourselves be a manifestation of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also in this pericope a juxtaposition of different Gentile responses yeah. to the King of Kings. Yeah, because Herod uh, ethnically was an Edomite. He's a king, and then you have the three kings. So, like, how are you going to respond to the king of kings and lord of lords? Right. Are you going to be uh, in league with Herod or in league with with the Magi, with with the three kings as we historically understand them to be? Um, quite different. Yeah. Um, so. Which, yeah, that, that speaks to how Matthew is composed, which many scholars would say is like it's a document that is not only a story of jesus load-bearing in all of its ways teaching about his life his passing his resurrection but also a handbook for discipleship and uh, when confronted with the incarnate lord we have to make a decision right Mm -hmm. i mean uh at least that's kind of how it's framed by the early church fathers who were talking about the incarnation as sign Mm mm-hmm Well, as always, we uh, hope and pray that our work together has been edifying and encouragement to you. Uh, We look forward to 2020 and our ministries. Uh, We hope that you will join us. We will um, hopefully be uh, getting some more audio equipment to improve our sound quality, even though Father Matt has worked very hard uh, and very well to to keep us sounding pretty good so far. and of course, if you'd ever want to send us a mixer, we'll never say no. Uh, <laughs> uh, but thank you for again for joining us uh, in in 2019. Uh, this will probably drop in the first few days of 2020. Yeah, before the end of Christmas. Yeah, Christmas time. Well, Father Matt, as we close, let's uh, pray in the words our Savior Christ have taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven. heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray uh, this collect for Epiphany together. O God, who by the leading of the star didst manifest thine only begotten Son to the peoples of the earth, lead us who know thee now by faith to thy presence, where we may behold thy glory face to face, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
Well, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you all and to you, Father Matt. <laughs> and to you. What does that look for? I don't know. You're filled with nuggets, aren't you? I was trying to think of something really funny to say, and it just didn't come to me. That's all right. You can't force it. There's always next year. That's right. Well, not always. If you're like 105 or 106, probably not next wow. year. Wow. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In any case, blessings. <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year.